Chapter Thirty One of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty One. It was in the small wooden house in the lower part of the town to which we have seen Sir William Geary lead his worthy companion, Guider Margan, that unhappy Kate Greenley sat in the recess of a window which looked over the meadows and through which a faint gleam of the autumnal sun was streaming in upon her. She was as beautiful as ever, perhaps more so, for her face was paler and more refined, and though she had lost the glow of rustic health, her countenance had gained a peculiar depth of expression which was fine, though sad, to see. Her eyes were fixed intently upon those autumnal fields with a straining gaze and a knitted brow, but it was not of them she thought, no, nor of any of the many things which they might recall to her mind. It was not of the happy days of innocence, it was not of the companions of her childhood, it was not the sports of her youth, it was not of her father's house, it was not of the honest lover whose pure affection she had despised, whose generous heart she had well-nigh broken. No, no. It was of none of these things. It was of him who had wronged and betrayed her. It was of him who had trampled and despised. It was of him whom she now hated with a fierce and angry hate. Ay, hated and feared, and yet loved, strange as it may seem to say so, of him whom she had resolved to punish and destroy, and for whom she yet felt a yearning tenderness which made every act she did against him seem like plunging a knife into her own heart. Oh, had Richard de Ashby then, even then, suffered his hard and cruel spirit to be softened towards the girl whom he had wronged, if he had soothed and tranquillised and calmed her, if he had used but one tender word, one of all the arts which he had employed to seduce her, Kate Greenley would have poured forth her blood to serve him, and would have died ere she had followed out the stern course which she purposed to pursue. But he was all selfishness, and that selfishness was his destruction. Hark! It is his step upon the stairs. But she no longer flies to meet him with the look of love and total devotion which marked her greeting in former days. The glance of fear and doubt crosses her countenance. She dare not let him see that she has been thoughtful. She snatches up the distaff and the wheel. She bends her head over the thread, and with a sickening heart she hears the coming of the foot, the tread of which was once music to her ear. He entered the room, with a red spot upon his brow, with his teeth hard set, with his lip drawn down. There was excited and angry passion in every line of his face, there was a fierceness in his very step which made her grieve she had not avoided him. It was too late, however, for though he scarcely seemed to see her, she could not quit the room without passing by him. He advanced as if coming direct towards her, but ere he had much passed the middle of the chamber, he stopped and stamped his foot, exclaiming, "'Curses upon it!' Then turning to the unhappy girl, he cried, "'Get thee to thy chamber!' "'What dost thou idling here, minion? "'Prepare in a few days to go back to thy father. "'Oh, if thou likest it better,' he added, 
with a contemptuous smile, to thy Franklin lover. He may have thee cheaper now, and find thee a rare leman. Kate stood and gazed at him for a moment, but for once passion did not master her, and she answered, well knowing that whatever seemed her wish would be rejected. I am ready to go back to my father. I have made up my mind to do it. Thou treatest me ill, Richard de Ashby. I will live with thee no longer. I will go at once. No, by the Lord, thou shalt not, he cried, resolved not to lose the object of his tyranny. Get thee to thy chamber, I say. I will send thee back when I think fit. Away, and expect others here. And Kate Greenley, without reply, moved towards the door. As she passed, he felt a strong desire to strike her, for the angry passion that was in his heart at that moment called loudly for some object on which to vent itself. She spoke not, however. She did not even look at him, so there was no pretext, and biting his lip and knitting his brow, he remained gazing at her as she moved along, with a vague impression of her beauty and grace sinking into his dark mind and mingling one foul passion with another. When she was gone and the door was closed, Richard de Ashby clasped his hands together and walked up and down the room, murmuring, "'That idiot, Mortimer! When he had him in his hand, to leave him in his chamber which any child could scale! Out upon the fool, with dungeons as deep as a well close by! But he cares naught so that he get the land! How is this step to be overleaped? Ha! Here they come!' In a moment or two after, the door of the room again opened, and four men came in, two dressed as noblemen of the court, and two as inferior persons. Those, however, whose apparel taught one to expect that high and courteous demeanour for which the Norman nobleman was remarkable, were not moved by the coarse passions to which the habits of the time gave full sway, were far from possessing anything like easy grace or manly dignity. There was a saucy, swaggering air, indeed, an affected indifference, mingled with a quick and anxious turn of the eye, a restless, furtive glance, which bespoke the low-bred and licentious man of crime and debauchery, uncertain of his position, doubtful of his safety, and though bold and fearless in moments of personal danger, yet ever watchful against the individual enmity or public vengeance which the acts of his life had well deserved. "'Well, Dickon,' cried the first who entered, "'we have thought of the matter well. "'But what makes these look so dull? "'Has the prior of St. Peter's made love to thy paramour, "'or the king won thy money at cross and pile, or—' <coughs> oh, "'Nonsense, Ellaby!' exclaimed Richard to Ashby. "'I'm in no mood that will bear jest. "'I am in a mood that will bear no jesting. "'What is the matter with me? "'By my faith, not a little matter.' Here, my bitterest enemy, you know, Hugh de Mothimer, he was in Mortimer's hands, doomed to death. His head was to be struck off this morning at daybreak. Mortimer and Pembroke were to divide his lands, and I and Guy de Margan to have revenge for our share. I would have had a slice of the lands too, interrupted Ellaby, or a purse or two of the gold, had I been in your place. Well, I say, replied Richard de Ashby, what would you the fool mortimer instead of plunging him into a dungeon where no escape was possible leaves him in his chamber thinking he cannot get out because the window is some twenty or thirty feet 
from the top of the wall, with a sentry pacing underneath. Of course, the man who knows his life is gone if he stays may well risk it to fly, and when the door is opened this morning, the prisoner is gone, while on the wall of the room, written with charcoal, one reads, My Lord the Prince, taking advantage of the permission you gave in case the base falsehood of my enemies should prevail against me, and having been condemned to death unheard, ere you could return to defend me, I have escaped from this chamber, but am ever ready to prove my innocence in a lawful manner, either by trial in court or by wager of battle against one of my accusers. Let any one efface this ere the prince sees it, if he dare. With this bracky ended, and now Guida Margan raves, but Mortimer and Pembroke laugh, believing that they shall still share the lands. I threw some salt into their mead, however, telling them that as they had left him with his head on, he had a tongue in it that would soon clear him at the prince's return, and as he had saved his life, would save his lands also. Is it not enough to drive one mad to see such fools mar such well-laid schemes? No, no, replied the man who had followed Ellaby. Nothing should drive one a whit madder than the drone of a bagpipe drives a turnspit dog. Give a howl and have done with it, Sir Richard. I'll tell you what, Dighton, said Richard to Ashby. You men wear away all your feelings as the edge of a knife on a grindstone. That sharpens, interrupted Dighton. Ah, if held the right way, replied Richard. "'but you have never known hate such as I feel.' "'Perhaps not,' answered Dighton, with a look of indifference, "'for I always put a friend out of the way before I hate him heartily. "'It is better never to let things get to a head. "'If, on the first quarrel which you have with a man, "'you send him travelling upon the long road "'which has neither turning nor returning, "'you are sure never to have a difference with him again, "'and I have found that the best plan.' "'But suppose you cannot?' asked Richard to Ashby. "'You may be weaker, less skilful, may not have the opportunity. "'Suppose you cannot, I say.' "'Why, then, employ a friend who can,' replied the bravo. "'There are numbers of excellent good gentlemen who are always ready, "'upon certain considerations, to take up any man's quarrel, "'and it is but from the folly of others who choose to deal with such things themselves "'that they have not full employment.' Here is Ellaby, tolerably good, both at lance and broadsword. And I, he continued, looking down with a self-sufficient air at the swelling muscles of his leg and thigh, and I do not often fail to remove an unpleasant companion from the way of a friend. Then if secrecy be wanting, we are as wise as we are strong. Are we not, Ellaby? To be sure, answered Ellaby with the same swaggering manner, we are perfect in everything, and fit for everything, as great statesmen as de Montfort, as great soldiers as Prince Edward, as great generals as Gloucester, as great friends as Damon and Pythias. And as great rogues, added Richard de Ashby, who was not to be taken in by swagger. And as great rogues, Ellaby, as... But no, I will not insult you by a comparison. You are incomparable in that respect at least, or only to be compared to each other. Very complimentary indeed, said Ellaby, especially when we come here to do you a favour. Not without your reward present and future, replied Richard de Ashby, 
"'You come not to serve me without serving yourselves, too.' "'Well, well,' cried Dighton, "'who carried the daring of his villainy to a somewhat impudent excess. "'We must not fall out, lest certain other people should come by their own. "'There's an old proverb against it.' "'For the proverb was as old even in his day. "'But to overlook your matter of spleen, dearly beloved Richard, "'and forgetting this Mothomer affair,' Let us take the affair up where Ellaby was beginning. We have thought well of the business you have in mind and judge it very feasible indeed. We are willing to undertake it. If we can get the old man once to come out of sight of his people alone, we will ensure that he shall never go back into Lindwell Gates on his own feet. However, there is a thing or two to be said upon other affairs. But speak you, Ellaby, speak. You are an orator, I, a mere man of action. "'Well, what is the matter?' asked Richard de Ashby. "'If you can do the deed, the sooner it is done, the better.' "'True,' said Ellaby. "'But there is something more, my beloved friend. "'The doing the deed may be easier than getting the reward. "'When this old man is gone, "'there still stands between you and the fair lands of Ashby "'a stout young bull-headed lord, called Allured, "'who, having ample fortune and fewer vices, "'is likely to outlive you by half a century.' and bequeath the world a thriving race of yunkers to succeed to his honours and his lands leave him to me replied richard his bull head as you call it will soon be run against some wall that will break it as i shall arrange the matter but even if such be the case rejoined ellaby how can we be sure that richard earl of ashby will not turn up his nose at us his poor friends as is much the mode with men in high station "'Refuse us all reward but that small sum in gold which he now gives, "'and dare us to do our worst. "'As we cannot condemn him without condemning ourselves likewise, "'we must have it under your hand, good Richard, "'that you have prompted us to this deed, "'and promise us two thousand pounds of silver as our reward.' "'Richard Ashby looked at him with a sneering smile, "'though his heart was full of wrath, and he answered,' "'You must think me some boy, raw from the colleges "'and ready to play against you with piped dice. "'No, no, Dighton, Ellaby, you are mistaken. "'Being all of us of that kind and character of man "'who does not trust his neighbour, "'we must have mutual sureties, that is clear. "'Now hear me. "'I will make over to you by bond this day "'my castle in Hereford, "'with all the land hereunto appertaining. "'You know it well.' In the bond there shall be a clause of redemption, and that if I pay you two thousand pounds of silver before this day two years, the castle shall be mine again. Such is what I propose. But in the meantime you shall give me a covenant, signed with your own hand, to do the deed that we have agreed upon. Then shall we all be in the power of each other. "'And pray what are we to have?' asked one of the two inferior men, who had followed the others into the room and who seemed to have been almost forgotten by the rest. "'What you were promised,' replied Richard to Ashby, "'each of you fifty French crowns of gold this night when the deed is done.' "'Aye,' cried the spokesman, "'but we must have a part of that two thousand pounds of silver.' But Dighton took him by the breast in a joking manner, saying, "'Hold thy tongue, parson. I will settle with thee about that.' If thou art not hanged before the money is paid, we will share as officer and soldier. You and Dicky Keene shall have a fourth part between you, and we too the rest. 
This promise appeared to satisfy perfectly his worthy coadjutor, who seemed to rely upon the old proverb that there is honour amongst thieves for the performance of the engagement. Such, however, was not the base with Richard de Ashby and the two superior cutthroats, who proceeded to draw up the two documents agreed upon for their mutual security. The bond of Richard de Ashby was soon prepared, and the only difficulty that presented itself regarded the written promise he had exacted from his two friends, for Dighton boldly avowed that he could not write any word but his own name, and Ellaby was very diffident of his own capacity, though either would have done mortal combat with any man who denied that they were gentlemen by birth and education. Richard Ashby, for his part, positively declined to indict the document himself, even upon the promise of their signature, and at length Ellaby, after much prompting and assistance, perpetrated the act with various curious processes of spelling and arrangement. "'And now,' said Richard to Ashby, when this was accomplished, "'all that remains is to lure the old man from the castle, "'which we had better set about at once, "'for if Allured were to return, our plan were marred.' "'But upon what pretense?' asked Dighton. "'Will you get him to come forth?' "'I have one ready,' answered Richard to Ashby, "'one that will serve my purpose in other respects too. "'But who we shall get to bear the letter is the question.' "'Why not the woman you have with you?' said Ellaby. "'We could dress her up as a footboy.' "'No,' replied Richard to Ashby thoughtfully. "'No, I did buy her a page's dress to employ her in any little things "'that might require skill and concealment, "'for she is apt and shrewd enough. "'But in this matter I dare not trust her. "'When the old man and the note were found, she would tell all. "'She needs some further training yet, and she shall have it.' "'but at present we must deal by other hands. "'You must get some rude peasant boy as you go along, "'and only one of you must show himself even to him. "'But I will write the note and come along with you myself. "'There is no time to spare.' "'Richard Ashby, then, who was, as we have hinted, a skilful scribe, "'sat down and composed the fatal letter to his kinsman, "'which was to draw him from his home and give him to the hands of the murderers.' and knowing well the earl's character, he took care so to frame the epistle as to ensure its full effect. The handwriting, too, he disguised as much as might be, though never having seen that of the person whose name he assumed, he endeavoured to make it as much like the hand of a clerk or copyist as possible. The note was to the following effect. To the most noble and valiant, Lord the Earl of Ashby, greeting. Dear and well-beloved Lord, a false, cruel, and horrible accusation having been brought against me, and I having been doomed to death unheard by the ears of justice and clemency, have been compelled to seek my own safety by flight from the castle of Nottingham, leaving my fair name and character undefended. Now I do adjure you, as one who has ever been held the mirror of chivalry and the honour of arms and nobility, to meet me this day at the hour of three by what is called the bull's hawthorn, which you, my lord, know well, and which is but one poor mile from your manor at Bloomdwell. I will there give to you, my lord, the most undoubted proofs of my perfect innocence, beseeching you to become my advocate before the king and the prince, and to defend me, as none but one so noble will venture to do, lest you should think that I seek to entangle you more on my behalf, 
I hereby give you back all promises made to me regarding the Lady Lucy, your daughter, and declare them null and void, unless at some future time you shall think fit to confirm them. It is needful, as I need not say, that you should come totally alone, for even the chattering of a page might do me to death. Hugh de Mothema Richard Ashby mentioned to none of his companions what the letter contained, but folding it, he tied it with a piece of yellow silk and sealed it, stamping it with the haft of Ellaby's dagger. Now, he cried, now all is ready. Let us be gone. Are your horses below? They're at the back of the house, said Dighton. Quick, then, to the saddle, cried their companion. I will get mine and join you in a minute to ride with you some way along the road, for I must have speedy tidings when the deed is done. By my faith, said Ellaby, walking towards the door, you are growing a man of action, Richard, but keep us not waiting. Not longer than to come round, replied Richard to Ashby, descending the stairs with them, and in a minute after the heavy door of the house banged to behind the party of assassins. Scarcely were they gone when poor Kate Greenley ran into the room and snatched up a large brown wimple which lay in the window, casting it over her head as if to go forth. Her eyes were wild and eager, her face pale, her lips bloodless, and her whole frame trembling. She seemed confused, too, as well as agitated, and muttered to herself, oh, horrible! Where can I find help? What can I do? I will seek these men, but it will be too late if I go afoot. I will take the page's dress again and hire a horse. She paused and thought for an instant, adding, but the mere is far from Lindwell. Tis the other way. It will be too late. It will be too late. Her eyes fixed vacantly on the window, and a moment after she uttered a slight scream, for she saw her head gazing at her through the small panes. Shaken and horrified, the least thing alarmed her, so that she caught at the back of a tall chair for support, keeping her eyes fixed with a look of terror upon the face before her, and asking herself whether it was real or some frightful vision of her own imagination. "'It is the boy,' she cried at length. "'It is the dwarf boy I saw with them in the wood.' And running forward with an unsteady step, she undid the great bolt of the casement. Tangel instantly forced himself through and sprang in, exclaiming, "'Ha-ha! I watched them all out, and then climbed to tell you—' but before he could end his sentence, Kate Greenley sank fainting upon the floor beside him. End of chapter 31